Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Congressional leaders have agreed to top line spending numbers for 2024, and we're about 10 days away from a shutdown. Happy New Year. Welcome back to Control. Uh, We're really excited to be here. For new listeners, this is a podcast where we explore the challenges and priorities facing Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Uh, It is great to be back. Last year, we had a really eventful Congress. Uh, Some would call it a circus. Um, And we are back now in 2024, expecting just as much unpredictability. You know, we took a little bit of a break, but are, I think, ready to start a very productive new year. Um, When we started this podcast, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. Uh, I think we suspected that Kevin McCarthy would soon take over the gavel. So we created a podcast that was intended to look down the road at the opportunities and and the challenges that he was going to face. Turned out to be a lot more challenges than opportunities. And now we have a Speaker Johnson. Uh, I think the jury is still out on what kind of speaker he's going to be, but you can be sure that we're going to get into how he's doing, his leadership style, and really everything that's going on in, in Congress, most immediately this uh, new funding agreement. But before we dive into this week's episode, we thought it might be helpful to reintroduce ourselves. Brendan and I are colleagues at a bipartisan public affairs and communications firm in Washington, D.C. called Seven Letter. And we both have backgrounds in Republican politics in Congress. Before coming to Seven Letter, I served as a top communications advisor to Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama, Congressman Mike Bishop from Michigan, uh, before moving over to the Senate side to serve as a communications director for Senator Cory Gardner from Colorado. And I was also in and out of uh, political campaigns uh, throughout my time on the Hill as well. Yeah, like Annalise, maybe even more than Annalise, I'm a creature of the Hill. Most of my experience before coming to Seven Letter was working in the House side of Congress. I uh, most recently led communications strategy for House Speaker Paul Ryan. Before that, I was a press secretary for House Speaker John Boehner, worked for a number of other Republicans on the Hill, including Kevin McCarthy and Tom Price and several other folks. So our backgrounds are firmly in Congress, largely on the Republican side, but we try not to bring too much of that here and definitely are going to have voices from, from all sides as we get into these issues. And one last bit of administration before we get into our programming for the day. We're going to try to be a little bit more regular with our recordings. So you're going to be confidently able to expect an episode of Control every week that the House is in session for 2024. We started this podcast not really knowing you know, where it was going to go. And I think we initially thought it would just be something pretty short in the, in the run up to the new Congress. But we had a lot of fun with it. And it, as it turned out, a lot of you were listening to it, which is great. We got a lot of really great feedback and a lot of people asking for episodes. And when things were going sideways, people wondering where we were. And we appreciate that um, sincerely. So um, instead of being so ad hoc as we were last year, definitely want to provide a little more reliability for the audience, for us, for, for everyone involved. So we will be with you every week that the House is in session. We're going to do this as a little bit more of a, a preview um, on the front end of the week so we can talk about what happened, but also get into what we think is going to happen, which I think is a little more of our our bread and butter looking down the road a little bit. Yeah, that's right. So I think Tuesdays are going to be the days that we, you know, try to release new episodes so you guys can be on the lookout for that. 
Um, and we're also always interested in hearing from you. Um, if you have questions about the podcast, uh, if you have preferences, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter. I'm at Annalise underscore Keller and Brendan can be reached at Brendan Buck and he'll also be your line for any complaints. Reached is a strong word, but that is that is where I tweet. <laughs> um, okay, without any further ado, so this week we're going to cover obviously the budget deal that was brokered over the weekend, just how close the margins are going to be in the House, the likelihood of a border deal moving through Congress. Of course, we have to talk about the potential impeachment for Secretary Mayorkas this week, House retirements, and then we are again on shutdown watch. So we're going to play a game of odds at the end of the podcast. So we have a pretty packed episode for you today. Yeah. So obviously, let's let's start with the the agreement um, on Sunday. Speaker Johnson and Majority Leader Schumer announce a deal uh, on top line spending numbers. This is basically in line with the deal that the previous Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck with President Biden to raise the debt limit. Probably the thing that sticks out to me is we are now only ten days away, and they just now reached this deal. I'm largely left wondering what the heck everyone was doing. The laddered CR that set up this deadline was passed in mid-November, and here we are uh, the second week in January, and we just now have an agreement that was what was obviously going to be the top-line spending number. On one hand, like I get like maybe you don't want to leave that sitting out for too long and create too much trouble for yourselves with, with members, but at the same point, like Mike Johnson has said he doesn't want to have another short-term spending bill. He wants to do you know, get every all of the business done at the deadlines of this the short term CR. I think we got a lot of questions of whether that is feasible at this point. Let's remember the the two deadlines. Um, the first one is January nineteenth. Maybe the good thing for them is that's just four bills, and there's some of the sort of low hanging fruit bills: transportation and HUD are one bill, energy and water, Milcon, VA, and AG are the the four that are up in January nineteenth, and then the rest of the government um, is is for February second, but. The overall spending uh, in this agreement, 1.6-ish uh, dollars, um, in line with the, the Fiscal Responsibility Act that includes some side deals that McCarthy negotiated with Biden, accelerating some of those, but that's unused COVID funds. That's money for uh, that was going to go to the IRS that no longer will under the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, the, the big takeaway, I guess we can start appropriating now, but I wonder why we couldn't have started back in November when effectively this was always going to be the way things went. Yeah, I think you said the most important thing there, Brendan, that Speaker Johnson has said he does not want a short-term spending bill. So I think effectively waiting this long to come out with a top-line spending agreement sets up a shutdown, uh, at least in my mind, on January 19th. I think it's worth like reminding folks where appropriation bills stand, because if that's, you know, if that's your path forward, if you presumably don't want a year-long CR, if you want to try to do finish out these pieces of legislation, the House has actually passed seven of the 12. So, I mean, you know, they've passed a fair number. With that being said, they have tried to pass the remaining, I think, four. Uh, I don't think state's gone to the floor at all, but the re- the remaining legis- pieces of appropriations bills have attempted, they've attempted to bring them to the floor and they failed. So like, I don't know that they've solved all those problems. I would speculate they absolutely have not. It's also worth mentioning that the Senate has passed three of their appropriation bills and there is one overlapping bill uh, that's MilCon that has passed both the House and the Senate. So anyway, that's a little bit, I guess I'll say that's a lot of information, but it's also, I think, just underscoring like 
this is not going to be easy with however many three legislative days they have. Well, let me remind everyone, though, that the House did pass a bunch of bills, but they were also at much lower spending levels than what we're dealing with here. And that's that was the folly of this entire last six months or so, and the folly over getting rid of, of Kevin McCarthy. Short history lesson reminding everyone, McCarthy negotiated this deal with Biden. It was supposed to set a top-line spending level where we didn't have to go through this whole House and Senate on different pages, House passing bills at one level, Senate passing them at another. We were supposed to resolve that question through that debt limit agreement months ago, but conservatives got all upset about it, and McCarthy sort of went back on the deal, and they started passing all these approach bills at levels that were never going to become law. But it still wasn't good enough. I just, oh, sure. You know, it wasn't good enough. They still didn't pass some of the most contentious yeah. bills because well, of conservative in, members. In part concern. because they, but also in part because they were cutting them so much that some of the, the moderates wouldn't vote for some of the things in some of these bills. But the point is, now they're back at the level that they were at in the very beginning, and now we are finally going to be able to to do this. If they had just accepted the reality that this is the, the level, this is the bipartisan level they were going to be written at, we could have been doing individual appropriations bills. We could have done all of the stuff that conservatives said they wanted McCarthy to do. It was those conservatives who demanded that they sort of break the agreement from the Fiscal Responsibility Act and ultimately couldn't pass bills and ultimately then got so upset that they put in a new speaker. I do have to pause here, of course, and just say how amazing it is that you bring in a whole new speaker, the sort of conservative right-wing speaker, and you end up with the exact same policy. Of course you end up with the same policy. It doesn't matter. He's still dealing with the exact same constraints and dynamics that McCarthy was dealing with. Again, a Democrat in the White House Democrat and a democratically-led Senate. Like, I'm sorry, you can, you can name Jim Jordan speaker, you can name Chip Roy speaker, you can name Thomas Massey speaker. The dynamics don't change. You can, he can be as right-wing as you want him to be. He is still going to have to live under this reality. And surprise, surprise, you end up at the exact same spending levels. Of course, conservatives are upset about that. But once again, I've said this before, I'll say it again. At some point, they should realize it's not the speaker it's them with the with the unrealistic expectations. So we could have avoided all this. We could still have a, a Speaker McCarthy. But I think it just goes to show that things look very different once you actually become Speaker. Uh, I assume um, RSC Chairman Mike Johnson would have been very upset at this deal. And now it is Speaker Mike Johnson who feels the need to accept it and actually sell it. Well, I think getting upset about something is much easier in some cases than getting something done. Yes. Well, yes, that is the, the challenge of leadership. But yeah, I think there's a lot of open questions. I mean, we, we tend to celebrate these these little agreements as huge milestones, and, and certainly they are they are necessary. But we're suffering, again, from, from low expectations here. I mean, this should have been a thing that was easy to do months ago. And the fact that we are just now doing it and celebrating it as a, a big breakthrough is, is kind of a sad reflection on how unproductive Congress has become in the last few years. They announced this deal over the weekend. I feel like there is, you know, you've already got Freedom Caucus folks coming out, but there's always a very big difference between that weekend conference call, the weekend rollout of a, a plan where nobody's together, nobody's in Washington, versus when they first get back into town, Congress comes back on Tuesday, and they had that first conference meeting, which for Republicans will be Wednesday morning. I think you're going to see a lot more fireworks in that meeting. I think you're going to see a lot more hurt feelings. The top line deal is not the bill. The top line deal is, okay, now go write a bill. So I'll be very interested to see how much blowback that Johnson gets and how conservatives try to take it out on him. I do think it's important to point out that Speaker Johnson's 
goodwill does seem to have kind of run dry uh, with conservatives. I think he sort of spent that goodwill before the new year. So he's kind of faced with a Freedom Caucus that's not really willing to give him much leeway. And so, again, the question becomes, what do these Freedom Caucus members, conservative members do in retaliation? Do Republican members try to bring back up a motion to vacate the chair? I think you could argue that that would really erode trust and comp- and any sense of confidence in the Republican conference. But then I can sort of make the other argument that if someone, you know, who's really not interested in legislating gets frustrated enough with the situation that they're put in, I could see someone, you know, maybe six months from now feeling like, what's the difference, you know, kind of burn it all down mentality and, and go with, you know, the nuclear yeah. option. I was talking about this on TV a couple of weeks ago, like someone asked, you know, do you think Mike Johnson is in trouble? And I guess my response was like, I don't know, but I don't know that I thought Kevin McCarthy was really in trouble. But all it takes is a very small number of people getting upset and doing the motion to vacate. You don't need, I mean, it only took eight to take out McCarthy. It actually took less than that in terms of the votes you need. And the House majority is is smaller than ever. So I, I expect, I mean, he's going to be well aware of that. And I, I'm not expecting they're going to try to boot him out. I, I think that's a little too much too soon. But he's going to get a lot of grief and he's going to be forced to, to sort of respond. And I imagine he's going to tell them that he's going to be fighting for all of these policy changes and policy riders. Remember, getting a top line agreement is just basically permission to then go negotiate the actual substance of the bills, all of the line items, all of the different policies that get attached. And he's going to probably try to make some promises about riders that he's going to get. And frankly, as I was saying, stuff he's just not going to be able to deliver on. So then the question becomes, okay, we'll say he ignores all that noise. Say he kind of takes it and everybody rolls and understands that the Freedom Caucus is mad. There is the issue of how do you get bills to the floor? You recall they have had to, in in recent times, just basically go around the rules committee and pass significant legislation, but by what we call suspension of the rules. Again, by way of background, most major pieces of legislation go through the House Rules Committee that sets the terms of debate. To start the debate on the bill, you have to pass what we call a rule that says, okay, you get an hour to talk about it. Everybody gets this number of amendments. It provides structure to the the process of bringing a bill up. When there's less controversial things, stuff you know is going to pass, stuff that frankly doesn't need a whole lot of debate on the floor, we pass them under what's called the suspension of the rules. Basically foregoes all of that. The only sort of trade-off is, is to be able to forego the debate, forego amendments and all that. It needs to pass with two-thirds of the House. Usually it is just reserved for non-controversial things. But because Kevin McCarthy, when he took over, put a bunch of conservatives on the Rules Committee, which is basically the Speaker's Committee and what decides what comes to the floor, uh, those conservatives at times have threatened to not bring things through the committee. They, they were going to use their votes to work with Democrats to block whatever the speaker wanted to bring up. So to avoid that, I believe it was the NDAA before the break, they had to bring that up under suspension for fear that conservatives would take it out. Here now again, is that going to have to be the sort of standing operating procedure for the House that eliminates all possibility of amendments? It eliminates, in a large way, debate on the floor. And there's ways around that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see whether if the Chip Roy's of the world who are really angry about this deal try to take that anger out by blocking the House from even being able to consider these things through the normal process and whether they have to round up two-thirds of the House. two hundred Instead of 218 votes to pass something, that means you have to have 290 votes to pass something, which you can do on you know big bipartisan things, but obviously makes the much harder to pass when you have to get you know an extra 70 votes or so. Yeah, I think they'll try to use every leverage tool available to them at this point. I think they're, I think conservatives are going to be looking for a way to to kind of push back against against this deal. Yeah, I mean the other 
thing that they've been really dug in about is, is immigration. Um, over the break, Johnson and a bunch of members went down to the border, of course, and you've got a, a pretty vocal group of House Republicans saying, uh, shut down the border or shut down the government. I mean, it's just another, I, I don't know how, how serious to take that other than it just sort of adds to conservatives are going to be really frustrated because as far as I can tell, this agreement does nothing on, on immigration. And I guess we can talk about what the Senate's doing, but just a lot of angst, a lot of um, a lot of reason for a conservative to vote no on what's coming on. At some point, they're never going to vote for this stuff anyway, and that's something I think Johnson's going to have to learn. Just kind of how do you navigate the fact that they're never going to vote for something? But the dynamics are so different now with the rules committee and such a small majority, like, like two votes to spare now. It's hard to sort of just kind of shrug anything off. Yeah, so that's right, Brendan. Over the weekend, Senator Langford was talking about uh, he's been the lead Republican negotiator for the Senate immigration package um, with Senator Cinema, and he was on uh, Fox News Sunday talking about text might be coming out early this week. Uh, I know senators have a conference meeting scheduled for Wednesday to talk about this. Um, so this would kind of be framework for you know some pol- some immigration policy changes, and it would also include you know likely include uh, Ukraine uh, support, Israel uh, support as well. Yeah, I mean, God bless uh, James Langford for continuing to to work at this, and when like all indications are from the House that like, hey bud, like whatever you do here, we are not touching. We are not taking up. Some of this is just like immigration politics is hard, but some of this is clearly just sort of bad faith acting from people who don't want to do anything on Ukraine. Like you said, this is intended to be what breaks loose the supplemental funding for Ukraine and Israel, which everybody says they want to do. It's now tied to immigration. And so Langford's been leading this group trying to get something done on I think what I've said before is like the hardest issue there that exists to get bipartisan agreement on. And I don't know, they, you know they've been pretty tight-lipped about what it is they're, they're looking at doing. Obviously, it's going to have an impact on how they treat amnesty and, and how we're able to sort of remove people uh, who come here. Um, it's third rail stuff for all kinds of people. Not knowing exactly what they're doing, I can still say with relative confidence that anything that passes the Senate with a bunch of Democratic votes is not going to be good enough for a bunch of House Republicans. And if this isn't directly tied to keeping the government open, it just feels like this is all just some kind of pretext for ignoring the Ukraine aid. Setting aside the challenges with immigration policy, I mean, you have, like you said, a bunch of conservatives that are uninterested in Ukraine funding. You have a bunch of Democrats that are going to balk at more Israel funding and support. I mean, this thing is just going to have a whole host of reasons for people to uh, to not want to support it. Now, I mean, there will be a lot of Republicans that will, you know, maybe be willing to swallow some things that they in, in an effort to get Israel funding and some folks who, you know, really do want the Ukraine package. But I just think it's going to be a real balancing act, whatever comes out. Yeah, I, I think it, it will be an interesting sort of statement on what kind of speaker Johnson is going to be. I, if something passes the Senate with 60 votes, I, I do think there is a, probably a majority in the House who would vote for such a package. The question then becomes, though, will Johnson bring it up or demand changes that he knows are just never going to happen? It feels like that's certainly where it's headed, but that effectively does kill uh, Ukraine and Israel funding. This is a challenge to your willingness to the I, I hate to use the word courage because I don't think that's the right right way to do it. But, you know, there are tough votes that you realize are probably the right thing to do. They're the best that you can get, the best that Congress is able to produce. It, you know, 
in the option or the alternative is typically nothing. And as speaker, you, you face these choices. Are you willing to put something on the floor that you realize is incrementally better than what we have now with the alternative being nothing? And often, you know, a speaker will say, like, this is the best we can do. I'm going to get a lot of grief for it. I'm going to get a lot of incoming fire from my own party, but I think that it is worth doing. That type of stuff, like, eats away your political capital and your standing within the conference. But that's kind of the deal. Like, that's kind of the job as, as leader. You realize you got to take those slings and arrows. It will be interesting to see whether he is willing to do that on this issue. I, I'm skeptical that he is. And it's hard to separate it from the funding deal. Like it's happening at the exact same time that he's probably going to get a bunch of grief from conservatives about this funding agreement. Um, so that's all the more reason to be skeptical that it's going to happen. But I just think he probably should appreciate that whatever the Senate produces is probably close to the best deal you're going to get. And you know, if you are honest when he says that he does think that there should be more money for Ukraine, if he does think that funding for Israel is important, He's got a choice to make, and we'll see what kind of choice he makes, and, and that, will, I think, will speak a lot about what kind of leader he's going to be. If you want to kind of see which way he's going, I think if his posturing continues to be, we will only accept HR2, I mean, that's kind of a signal right away that you can sort of appreciate that essentially that means we're not going to be moving forward with I any may, kind of may package. Have been like giving too much credit that there's hope for this. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical when, when they're basically setting the standard that something that is zero zero Democrat votes for is, is the, yeah, he, their bottom line. He wants he wants the perfect and doesn't want to make or presumably won't make some of these incremental improvements at the risk of, you know, and, and maybe there's I haven't seen this package. There might be very fair arguments that say that there are elements of this legislation that make things worse. And maybe there are um, you know, going to be policies in there that are that are non-starters. I don't know. Um, but the backdrop to all of this, of course, is the possible impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. And so this would be the first cabinet secretary impeachment in nearly 150 years. Uh, and I think the first uh, committee action or impeachment hearing, rather, is planned to take place uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. As you might expect, me, the softy institutionalist, I take issue... <laughs> Um, with this, I really think this is, is pretty problematic. I, what, what is going on in the border, like no question is a crisis and it's bad and needs to be resolved. But I just have real problem with pursuing impeachment over what is fundamentally a policy disagreement or a judgment on your performance, not a high crime or misdemeanor. I mean, Impeachment does not exist because you don't like the policy of the administration. It doesn't even exist for incompetence. And I guess they're going to try to make the argument that, you know, failing to secure the border is somehow a failure to fulfill your legal obligations. Feels like pretty weak stuff. And frankly, you know, if failure to secure the border is an impeachable offense, then we probably should have been impeaching officials for decades now. I kind of just see this for the politics that it is, that they've been beating up the administration on the border for so long. And at some point, you need to have a release valve. And Mayorkas may end up just being that release valve when there's all this frustration on the other things. I just think it sets a really bad precedent. Um, Obviously, he's not going to be convicted and removed in, from the Senate, but we are now setting the precedent that you can impeach a cabinet official if you just think they're doing a crummy job. Um, and that's never the standard that we've ever set before. 
I completely agree with the concerns around precedent. And I also think that in terms of being a release valve, I think there is frustration among a lot of Republicans that some of the Biden uh you know, impeachment efforts are moving too slowly. You know, there's not like we're not really seeing anything there. So it's almost just like, you know, immigration is really riling up the base and everyone, you know, is kind of like, hey, we can sort of get get a W over here for, you know, let, let's move on this. Let's sort of look over here. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it in terms of pure politics, totally, I get it. And, and you know, even beyond sort of base politics, which that this certainly is, I do think that immigration is a great issue for Republicans politically right now. Um, I that for a very long time, there's been just sort of perception that, you know, border security and immigration is just sort of a right wing issue. I think you look anywhere across America, like this is not an issue just at the border anymore. It's an issue in cities and states everywhere. It's an issue that independents care a lot about. And it's frankly just a much worse situation now than we've seen before. So like, I, I have no problem with Republicans leaning in on this issue. They absolutely should. I just question, you know, as a sort of fundamental institutional issue, whether impeachment over it is is the right way to go. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they're they're just sort of itching for something, um, some type of win that they can show their base that, that, that they're tough. And it's hard to separate um, yeah. this from all the other impeachment fever. Well, maybe everybody will roll their sleeves up and get a comprehensive immigration reform package done instead of tying up the floor with an impeachment. Absolutely. That's definitely going to happen. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about retirements that we're seeing in the Republican conference. Right now, we actually have more Democrats that are retiring than Republicans. I think despite that, for one, I think we're definitely going to see a lot more. I think they're coming. There's been more announced just this week, um, but we're going to see more members are spending the holidays at home, talking with their families, coming back to Congress this year deciding, you know, hey, this isn't for me. But the other thing that I think is really interesting about it is Democrats are predominantly going to run for the Senate. They're leaving, they're pursuing other office. And a lot of the Democrats are rank and file members that are retiring or stepping aside. In Republicans, what I think is interesting that we have is we have a lot of committee chair people. We have a lot of leadership. We have a lot of institutional knowledge. Uh, we have McHenry, McCarthy, Ferguson, Luke Meyer, Kay Granger, Brad Winstrup, Drew Ferguson. Like I could go on, but we have quite a list of Republican members that have been in the institution for a very long time uh, stepping aside. And it to me, it's just really like people just don't want to be here anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no. Um, I, I always caution people like retirements happen every time. My bigger concern is not necessarily the number of retirements. It is the type of members who are who are leaving. It has been uh, skewed towards the people, like you said, who've, who've been around, but also the people who tend to be more serious policymakers, lawmakers, um, the type who came to Congress to sort of work their way up by, um, you know, doing their their committee work and, and earning their reputation um, as serious people, uh, and you know, those people probably feel less at home uh, in the House these days. Um, but they're also ending up being replaced by people who um, are a lot less serious, in my view. And so you end up just getting a conference um, that, you know, for example, kicks out its speaker. Um, and it, that just seems to be building on itself, um, you know, trading more serious seasoned lawmakers for people who are there for um, more political pursuits. Um, and I just think it's a, a really bad dynamic for for the future yeah well on that cheery note shut down shut down watch 
Um, Brendan, what do you think the odds of a government shutdown are at this point? So uh, just to be clear, are we talking about partial shutdown, like January 19th shutdown, or like we're going to get through the entire, the, the February deadline and not have a shutdown about just for the first four week, first four bills? Yeah, let's do let's do January 19 and then you can elaborate on how you envision this being resolved. I mean again the the four bills that are due on January 19th are relatively easy. They're less controversial. They only account for like 300 billion, 350 billion out of the 1.6 trillion um, that they have to do. So in some ways that's easy. And I'm sure that a lot of the work has already been done to write these bills. Um, I'm more just worried about the clock than anything. Because, again, they got to actually, like, negotiate the line items. And they got to negotiate whatever sort of policy riders exist. And then the Appropriations Committee have, has this really – they have these these processes where they, like, read each bill aloud, where they all get around a table together and they, like, take turns putting a piece of paper down. Just I think it's just to, like, make sure that – Nobody's slipping anything in a bill. We used to get, they used to drive us nuts. Um, we'd have these like late deadlines and it would be like government shuts down at midnight and it's 11 o'clock and we're like, where the hell is the bill? And they're like, they're doing this ceremony. I don't know what to tell you. And they're just standing around like one page after another page, just like laying it down on top of each other. It takes hours, um, especially for like a 2000 page bill, but it's just like their process that they go through and their appropriators. And so they, they do what they do. And they would always tell us like, there's no shortcutting it. So we'd end up like going past our deadlines because this silly ceremony they have, it's not silly. It's for good reason, but it takes forever. So anyway, there's processes that need to go in here. And I'm a little worried about the timeline. I do think that they're going to need some type of, of short-term something. I'm, I'm imagining Johnson can like get himself five days if he needs it. Like he said, no more short-term CRs, but if it's that close, if it's five days rather the, than the, three months, if they're still reading the bill out loud and laying down the paper, and they just need a few more hours to do it, I feel like he'll be able to get that. Or we have like a, you know, it's shut down over the weekend, but nobody really cares because the government's not open on the weekend anyway, kind of thing. So I'm going to say there's not a shutdown in the short term, but I do think that we still have a long way to go to avoid the bulk of the spending. Um, and how that all comes together, because that's a much more complicated thing to negotiate. Um, and, you know, there's just the hanging out there, this idea of doing a full year continuing resolution um, to avoid all of this. So uh, I will say no shutdown, um, but I'm not very confident in that. And maybe next week we can talk a little bit more about um, the dynamics that exist with a CR and the weird 1% cut that automatically would go into place. And so a CR here is not quite what a normal CR would be. So that's a long way of saying we'll probably be okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I guess, less optimistic. I think January 19, I think we're shut down. I think but it's still at least like, a partial shutdown. Yeah, it's partial, I mean, people it's, aren't going to feel it. And I think that's why it's more likely because I think it's not going to feel real and we're not going to be able to get our ducks in a row before that date because there's just not, I mean, to your point, there's not a lot of time and it's not going to feel like a real shutdown. They kind of, I don't know if that was the intention. I don't understand this laddered CR. I don't understand what the intention was, but you know, certainly if the whole government isn't shutting down all at once, it just, you know, doesn't quite feel the same. I mean, that will definitely be the attitude of some members that like, this is not a real shutdown. This is not a big deal. Like we can get through if, you know, 
if we can't shoulder, like Chip Roy will say, like, you know, if we can't handle this, how can we be expected to, you know, whatever. Um, that is how, I th- what I think is the longest shutdown in history was <laughs> the tail end when I was last there, um, is because it was only a partial shutdown, because it wasn't like... Was so that 18 to 19? Yeah, we'd already funded uh, the Department of Defense. We'd already funded a lot of like the bigger uh, agencies and departments. So, you know, while it was technically a shutdown, um, it just wasn't painful enough for anybody to really do anything. So, you know, to, to your point, this could be a, like Mike Johnson wants to show he's tough. He quote unquote shuts down the government in, in you know, demanding whatever, something on immigration, some kind of pro-life policy writer, who knows? Um, it wouldn't surprise me. And it wouldn't surprise me if the blowback is pretty serious um, when they come back. Um, it's just, uh, you know, I guess a question again of whether he's um, willing to just kind of like shrug at that and move forward or if he gets spooked. And I just don't know enough about him yet to say whether being spooked will stop him. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we will come back next week to see all of the developments uh, around government funding um, and we look forward to talking then. Every Tuesday, check us out. You'll find us there in your feed. Please subscribe too. We appreciate that. Thanks. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.